Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick. Um, in in this episode, I'll get right to it. This is probably going to be a short one. In fact, a lot of the, my comments on some of these later short stories will probably be, for the most part, brief. Um, you know, I uh, sometimes they're, they're kind of baffling to me a little bit. They're a bit, sometimes I don't really like them. They, they seem thrown together sometimes a few are interesting but they're they're harder to talk about along the themes that i've been pursuing in this podcast i guess that's the real problem right if this was a i guess a more philosophical podcast it was more reflecting on kind of gnostic traditions i could maybe make more sense of these later later stories but these are going to be stories that kind of come out of his 1973 experiences, the ones he dissected in great detail in the Exegesis, um, and will be discussed in the Vallis Trilogy and in Radio, Phil, Radio Free Albemuth, and those later later novels of his. So it's, they're harder for me to talk about, um, so in, in this sense I really will encourage uh, or encourage your comments and your thoughts to get a, a broader point of view about, about some of these stories. Um, now the first of these was written in 1975. It wasn't published in his lifetime, and that's true of a handful of these later stories, the last, you know, dozen, the last maybe eight or nine, actually, in the collected stories of Philip K. Dick. Some of them were not even published in his lifetime. Uh, now, this one is, is called The Eye of the Sibyl. Again, not published, but written in 1975. That's why I'm talking about it now. It eventually found its way into the collected stories, though, and you know, it's that's in the fifth volume of the collective stories of Philip K. Dick. In fact, that's the title of that collection, Eye of the Sibyl. I, I don't know why they chose that title because, you know, a little black box maybe would have been a better title. I don't know. None of these stories are really known through any kind of adaptations. So maybe they just they just picked one that that sounded good or maybe it pulled pulled better than the others. But anyways, that's that's it. Um. So, yeah, I don't have much to say about it um, as in terms of background. It just I'll just jump into the plot of this story and then give you some of my very, very brief thoughts about it. So I apologize in advance for this being a short episode. And again, that's probably going to be true of, of several of these, these, these final stories. Maybe I should just do them all in one, in one episode and get it over with. But I don't know. Here we go. Now, our character here is Philos Dictos of Tiana. Now, obviously, this is based on Philip Dick's name. Um, he's a priest, and he's narrate, he narrates about, a sibling, this, about the Sibylline books, which predicted the assassination of Julius Caesar. The Cumian Sibyl. Now, the Sibyl is simply the Roman oracle, right? The Roman version of the, of the Greek oracle, right? So it's a fortune-telling priest, essentially. Um, the Cuman Sibyl can look thousands of years in advance, and that could have and could have recorded events in in these books, this Sibylline books. So they could be fortune telling books, essentially prophetic. 
Philos Dictos is qu- was quarreling with his wife, Xantippe, over the assassination of Julius, Julius Caesar. She says that it is the, that the Sibyl are really capable of reading the future. They would have they would have predicted Caesar's murder. She accuses the priests of just making things up. So if the Sybil had really been capable of reading the future, right, they, they would have seen Caesar's murder coming and maybe stopped it or, or predicted it in earlier times, right? It's, it's kind of like the problem with Nostradamus and these other kind of texts, right? Like we can look back at now and say, oh, that's, that's Saddam Hussein or that's Adolf Hitler or something. But no one prior to that could read those books and make those connections, right? It's only when we kind of piece things together in hindsight. So she, the wife is basically saying prophecy really doesn't e- exist. The priest is making things up. Dictos replies that he has seen the books that are talked about here. Unable to answer fully, he goes on to see the Sibyl himself. At the temple, Dictos sees the Sibyl accompanied by two immortals, two gods. The immortals speak of the successful reign of Augustus and the arrival of a new cult around the light creature. They also predict the end of the Sibyls and the intellectual chaos that will come in future centuries. The immortals then vanish and the Sibyl pulls out an eye. This was the eye that the Sibyl used to see the fate of humanity. The Sibyl shows Dictos an image of a massive city with giant ships, high buildings, and crowded streets, essentially showing the modern world. Now, Phil Dick, our our good friend Phil Dick, is here as a character, remembers playing with a puppy in a yard before being called inside by his grandmother. He then recalls reading the comic pages in the Berkeley Daily and other childhood events. These memories culminate in the decision to become a science fiction writer. Or these events culminate in the decision to become a science fiction writer. In high school, Dick writes some Latin words on a board before, after dreaming about Roman chariots, but denies knowing the language. Later, he dreamed of the assassination of President Kennedy two days before it happened. He asks a psychologist about the dreams, and she explains that they are part of the collective unconscious, stretching back thousands of years. So instead of looking forward dreams are actually just a function of our collective unconscious and therefore kind of look back into our kind of primordial beliefs and traditions and and worldview. Now, while preparing to write an article, Dick seems to know the word caduceus, despite never having consciously learned it. He asked the woman who he is living with what year it is, and he learns it's 1974. Dick then realizes that the quote-unquote tyranny is in power. Suddenly, two globes being... Globe beings appear around this woman. They explain that without the Sybil, they are inspiring people. That without the Sybil, they're gone, right? Plucked out the eye earlier. They now have to inspire people through dreams. Now, Philos Dictos recorded these that these events would take place 2,000 years in the future when humanity is blind and the world descends into the tyranny of winter. The immortals will once again wake up wake people up. It seems they're doing it with dreams. Evil will fall in the United States, but eventually the iron prison will fall into ruin, as is predicted in one of Virgil's poems. So again, what the story essentially is, is Phyllis Dicto, sometime after Caesar's assassination, but before, I guess, the rise of Augustus, is debating with his wife prophecy. He then has an experience with the Sibyl and the, and the immortals, he has this vision, and this vision is of Philip Dick being essentially a prophet and a future world of tyranny. And then the story ends back in the Roman era with Philos Dictos thinking about and reflecting on the future of humanity and how humanity will eventually wake up. And without the Sybil to guide them, they will find new ways to be inspired and, 
and interact with the future. Now, the Eye of the Sibyl was written after Dick started to become more influenced by this idea that knowledge could come from the outside, right? And that's a major theme of almost all of his later works, right? And that's that's the heart of the Gnostic tradition anyways, right? That, that things can be... No, the heart of Gnostic is knowledge, right? That's the, the term. Like agnostic means I don't know, right? So Gnostic is, is knowledge, and that knowledge comes from some kind of outside source. This realization emerged from his spiritual experiences he had in 1974. Or was it 1973? I, I forget. Maybe it's 74, actually. Um, and that's why there's such a big turn in his writing after after the pre-persons and, and his novels get different. You know, like even The Scanner Darkly, which, you know, is a solid work, was written. Let me look it up here. Written in 1973. So that's written before those experiences took place. Almost everything he writes after after 74 is is dealing with these questions of, of knowledge and where knowledge comes from and how humanity is being guided by external forces whether malevolent or, or beneficent so this is all this is really a place to start if you want to study kind of his agnostic term this, these, this might be the first thing he wrote after these experiences I'm not sure when he actually started writing down in what order but you know it was you know, written in 75, so it's, it's a fairly close reflection on those experiences. Now, the story suggests the existence of the Sibyl, which can provide foreknowledge of the future events, right? It's an oracle. At the beginning, the story is set in ancient Rome, where the Sibyl predicts the rise of Augustus and the emergence of Christianity. I think it's referred to as a, as a, let me go back to my notes here, the light creature. Yeah, that's basically Jesus, I guess. The second half of the story kind of revisits a theme we saw in Water Spider, and that is that science fiction writers are precognitive. So you can go back to listen to my comments about Water Spider um, way back in my series on the 1960 stories. Um, but in that case, in the case of Water Spider, no, sorry, in this case, the writer is, again, it's Philip K. Dick. He's writing himself into the story. It's presented as more of, of an oracle. It's kind of how Stephen King writes about himself in The Dark Tower, you know, as he's trying to deal with that same question about where writers get their ideas from. In Water Spider, it's a time travel device that that explains the... It's a time travel device that explains, you know, how science fiction writers get their ideas, right? But here, it's it's basically knowledge is implanted in the minds of people. And, and that's kind of how King deals with it in the dark tower quote there's no double now to help to give advice to the republic in dreams we are inspiring people here and there to wake up they are beginning to understand that the price of release is being paid by us to free them from the liar who rules them and quote that now that's from the immortals from essentially the the spirits that guide the sibyl and once again dick is calling for a rebellion against the future that he's laid out in his works now i think that's where there's some optimism in the story even though it's pretty bleak it's got a bleak view of the future there's there's a, there's that space that this can be broken free of but we have to be guided and, and and that 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 kind of we can't really save ourselves and that's what really bothers me about a lot of dick's later works is this idea that we really can't break free of this iron prison black iron prison and we'll talk more about that in upcoming episodes but we can't break free of the black iron prison without the help of outside forces or knowledge Still, you know, I think this story suggests much of what's dangerous about Dick's later theologically inspired writings, predicting that the 
iron prison will, will fall seems to take the burden of challenging the iron prison from our hands. Prophecy may, may make good for good science or good fantasy, maybe even good science fiction from time to time if you can find a good explanation about why prophecy exists. But it's a pretty horrible foundation for building political movements. And I can't think of any examples where prophecy has been fairly successful. I mean, Marxism, I guess, has its prophetic side to it. But, you know, the, the more prophetic Marxism of the 20th century has failed, right? That's, that's, that was actually a big problem of 20th century Marxism is that there was this vision of what the end result would be, right? Based on kind of Marx's vision of the future. And a lot of other Marxists just sort of wait around for the revolution to come instead of making it come true, right? And I think this is why Lenin was such an important figure in Marxism, because Marx has this idea that, you know, the, the kind of the wheels of history turn. And yeah, we can push it a little bit here and there, but there's a general trajectory of history. You can't go really go backwards or forward too much or too fast. And so there's not the need for political action that kind of comes organically from the working class organizations or whatever. It's Lenin who said, no, we need to kind of seize power while we can, right? We have to make the revolution. Now, the best of Marx was the Promethean side to his writing, in my opinion. I think there is a side to Marx that's much more Promethean, much more human-centric, and, and much more optimistic about human action. But a lot of times Marx gets presented as this kind of bland, uh, prophetic figure who just kind of sees the workers' revolution of coming eventually. The unfortunate idea that the workers' revolution is inevitable may be the reason the workers' revolution never even happened, though. But I'm also troubled by Dick's betrayal of his own creativity in the story. As with Water Spider, we're given the idea that creative writing is essentially not creative at all, that there's nothing a writer produces that does not come from the outside, either through experience, as in the case of Water Spider, or through prophecy, as in the case of I the Sybil. And I, I have too much respect for Philip K. Dick to accept this artistic fatalism. And, you know, it's it's kind of sad for me that, that Dick seems to think at the end of his career that his ideas are not his own. But um, that's where he seems to end, have ended up. Um, so that does it for for um, for my look of Dick's writings of 1975. So we looked at Confessions of a Crap Artist. That was actually written much earlier, but published in 1975. And then this short story, The Eye of the Sybil. Um, next, we'll we'll have a, a our, we'll look at our the writings from 1976, and now there's only the one. It's it's actually a novel that he wrote with Roger Zelensky called D.S. Airy that that rehashes a lot of of Dick's kind of older short stories. It's, it's a bit of a throwback, but it's it's kind of interesting. Um, and then we I believe we'll then we'll look at a Scanner Darkly published in 1977, and then get back into uh, a short story or two. So that's what's coming up if you're reading along with me in this this podcast. As always, thanks for listening. If you have your own comments about the Eye of the Sybil or Dick's theological turn or Gnosticism or what Gnosticism means for creativity or political movements, please let me know what you think. I would love to, to hear your points of view. And if there's anything I missed, anything I'm forgetting or misinterpreting about this story, please share your thoughts about that as well. So um, thanks so much. I will we'll see you next time with with my thoughts on on DS Airy. To feel these changes happening in me.